from the James Bond film with the same name, Sheena Easton, for your eyes only. And Danny and I were trying to remember if that was the one that had Margaret Thatcher. Yes, in I have a end. strange desire to talk with a parrot over a phone. <laughs> people who, real, who people who've seen the ending of For Your Eyes Only know it's not a spoiler. It's quite an interesting scene. Yes, yes. Uh, whether you like James Bond or not, and uh, I, I always used to like them. You can't deny they used to have the greatest songs, didn't they? Mm, I would dispute you on that. Favorite Bond? Who is your favorite Bond? Oh, um, I actually think uh, Roger Moore, personally. I just liked the... We shall have to agree to disagree, because my favourite's <laughs> Timothy Dalton. But, uh, moving on. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, you can't deny they used to have great, uh, great tracks. Well, still do, I guess, don't they? But, yeah, there's, there's the odd one, which is an, uh, a clunker. But we'll get distracted if we talk about Bond yes. for the entire hour. Anyway, Daniel Mumby uh, is joining me for the final hour of The Breakfast Show, and we're going to be looking at the, uh, the movie scene. Fredo. Getting all excited for the Oscars tomorrow. Well, to be honest, I think that most of the results are sort of a shoo-in. I mean, there's there's always a sort of debate about whether the BAFTAs is just, you know, doing the legwork for the Oscars or, you know, how, what the involvement of the Golden Globes is. But basically, I think that in most of the categories, you're going to see the results pretty much repeated and that King's Speech probably will win Best Picture. Colin Firth is going to win Best Actor. Natalie Portman's going to win Best Actress. I think that the one... Um, outside bet that I would have, although I've just said King's Speech will win Best Picture, I think there is an outside chance that they might actually give Best Picture or Best Director to the social network, because yeah. that's a much more American story, and that did very well at the Golden Globes. But otherwise, I think, you know, I mean, obviously don't come crying to me if you bet your house on a category and you lose, <laughs> but I think it's a pretty safe year, to be honest. And all the glitz and the glam. Well, yeah, but that's not that's not why we do it, is it? <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I'm no. not going anyway. So. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Right. Well, Didn't I even shall invite me. <laughs> I shall attempt not to massacre any of the film names this week. Although a bit later on, we're going to be talking about phenomenology, and yes. I don't guarantee my ability to say that more than once in the show without getting it wrong. Shall we start with the top ten? I think we better. Yes, number ten. I guess on its uh, on its way up, but after a very good run, at Black Swan. Yeah, and it's still the maddest film you'll see all year. I think. Like I say Natalie Portman is almost certain to win a, the Best Actress Oscar on Sunday. She's got another film coming out this week called No Strings Attached, which we'll talk about. I mean, I, I would say that if you've seen the film and you've managed to get through it without coming out screaming and shaking, as a lot of people have, go and get either The Red Shoes or Dario Argento's Suspiria on DVD because those are the films to which Black Swan owes the greatest debt. Good, good. You've seen The Red Shoes, haven't you? Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. It's terrific. Yes, yes, that was good. Number nine... Uh, a true story, it says here. Uh, Justin Bieber. Now, it's coming at number nine. Would you call that underperforming, based upon the massive fan base that Justin Bieber has? Yeah, you'd have thought so, yes. Yeah, because um, it's, it's funny that all these sort of big concert films with people like Jonas Brothers and Hannah Montana, they get sort of massively heralded and advertised anyway, and they sort of come in at number nine or number ten. And you know, I don't know whether that is an indication that Justin Bieber is on his way out or not. I mean, that's probably too early to say. As I said last week, I don't have any inherent problem with his music, although I wouldn't buy his records, and I don't have an inherent problem with young people showing talent and therefore becoming famous. The problem with the film is that it feels too sort of hermetically sealed and sanitised so that you're not getting the true story, you're getting the version they want you to know. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that goes in the next uh, few weeks, but you would have thought in half-term week that would have been a... Uh, a shoe in for a yeah. Well, a it's, good it's, place. it's it's the the back end of half yeah, term. So, I so maybe yeah. if they had opened yeah. it the week before, it might have taken more money. Yeah, number eight, number one on its uh, on its way out. I guess just go with it. It's rubbish, and I'm glad. Yeah, it's I on seem its way to out. remember you didn't like that one. 
Another one heading down the the charts, uh, number seven from number three the week before is Tangled. Yeah, but that's also had a very good run. It's perfectly fine, decent CG animation. I mean, I don't think it needed to be in 3D, and I don't think it's going to age as well as their 90s work, you know, little, well, Little Mermaid's late 80s, but that still looks absolutely brilliant. But it's got a decent story, I like the cast, and it's good to see it still taking money, because, you know, it, in a world when it's very difficult to find films with good role models for young girls, it's, it's, I'm glad that it's kind of stuck around. And incidentally, if you're a fan of animation and you um, like the work of Hayao Miyazaki, go and get The Cat Returns on DVD, which is a great sort of mashup of Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz, but with talking cats. Oh, that sounds great. It is yes. really good. Yes. So, number six, uh, go and save, save Jellystone Park. It's uh, Yogi Bear. Or don't, because the film is incredibly boring. It's very derivative. Apparently, Dan Aykroyd says that Ghostbusters 3 is now going ahead, and there's some quibbles about whether that's going to be live action or animated, and... No, thanks for that. I mean, I'm not a Ghostbusters fan by any stretch of the imagination, and Yogi Bear is just another pension plan for Dan Aykroyd, and Justin Timberlake has undone all the good work, all the goodwill towards him that he built up doing the social network. I said there's going to be a few films in the top ten this week you don't like. Well, it? it's part of the course. If you've I seem to remember number number five didn't get the best of reviews from you last week. <sighs> Why? Why would anyone want to go and see Martin Lawrence torching his own career or what was left of him? It's just not funny. That's the basic problem with it. I mean, I don't... With all of these films, you, you have to... You don't bear any personal ill wills of the people that made them. You just wish that they had the intelligence to do something better with their money. Yeah, right. Now, a little bit better at number four, True Grit. Pronouncing it properly this <laughs> yes, week. Yes. Um, it's good. It isn't great. I mean, I do think it's highly likely that Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, um, will repeat his BAFTA success. Have you seen uh, The Secret Garden? Yes, oh, brilliant Because he shot film. that as well. Absolutely brilliant film. Uh, yeah, and yes. he, he is a really great cinematographer. He knows how to take landscapes and shoot them in this really sort of, well, in the case of this and No Country of Old Men, just yeah. a complete arid, barren wasteland. I mean, I think that... I like the performances, particularly Matt Damon and Jeff Bridges, and I like the way that they sort of turn the idea of justified biblical revenge on its head. The problem is that, in many ways, they're so respectful towards the source that when all their sort of quirkier edges come through, like the scene of the guy wandering through the woods dressed as a bear with a beard like the kid out of Howl's Moving Castle, those moments kind of stand out so much that the rest of the film starts to feel a bit ordinary, and it, it is a sort of semi-skimmed Cohen's offering, but I did enjoy it. Yes, I do remember a Secret Garden. That was fantastic. I saw it in a plane, as you quite often do, to get to yes. see films you wouldn't expect to like, and I really liked so yeah, very good. good performance by Maggie Smith. Yeah. Right, uh, number three, The King's Speech. Well, there's not much more to say. It's no. really good. Go and see it if you haven't already. Yes. Do you want to give people a reminder of the yes, Playhouse screen? Yes, it's at uh, the Playhouse, um, Tuesday nights, mm -hmm. Wednesday afternoon, and I think the week after, if I remember, Saturday the 12th of March, 13th of March, something like Sounds that. Sounds familiar. Yeah. And um, Black Swan is also yes. screening there as well. Yeah. I think it's later this month. Yeah. And Inc. 510785 if you want to go and book your tickets. Yes. Yeah. Right, on to number two. A good film for half-term week, I guess. Then, well, do you want to see what it is before... Romeo and Juliet. Thank you. Um, it's, no, as an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. I mean, obviously, it's not up there with West Side Story, which I think is a use certificate, so, no, if you've got young children, yeah. you can take them to see it. It isn't as good as the Baz Luhrmann version or, indeed, Franco Zeffirelli's version, which has Bruce Robinson, who wrote with Nell and I in. Um, it's relatively innocuous. I mean, the animation isn't anything special. There's nothing in it that's sort of offensive or suspect, but it's just a bit dull, yeah. frankly. And number one, new release, Justin, Paul. Although this did open on Valentine's Day, so it's had a sort of four-day staggered yeah. opening weekend, and it's not the full-on 
Simon Pegg, Nick Frost experience. I mean, it does look like it's had all the sort of interesting edges taken off their screenplay in order to make it appeal to a mainstream audience. And I have a real sort of problem with Seth Rogen. I just don't think he's funny. But... In a way, and based upon the new releases that are coming out, I'm glad that this has sort of taken money because it might inspire them to get back to work with Edgar Wright and this might actually provide the basis for the funding of their third film together. So on that basis, I, I suppose it's all right. And certainly compared to some of the other stuff in the top ten, I'm glad that that's taking money over Martin Lawrence's films. So a bit of a mixed week overall. Well, yeah, I mean, you're always going to get a certain number of films which you can kind of throw your hands up rapturously and say this is wonderful and the rest will sort of be disappointing. But no, it's a case of, you know, you pay your money and take your choices and, uh, you know, listen to whoever you like. Lionheart Radio. Well, from uh, 2011 back to 1974. Indeed. And uh, a film directed by John Carpenter, produced by John Carpenter, written by John Carpenter, music by John Carpenter. Edited by John Carpenter. Did John Carpenter have something to do with it? I think he might have had it in some strange way. Yes, yes we're talking, of course, about Dark Star. Um, bit of background, 1974, sci-fi comedy or parody, which, like I say, launched the directorial career of John Carpenter. Are you familiar with his work in any great way? Not a lot. Have no. you seen Halloween? Yes, yes. Right. And have you seen The Thing? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the ones he's most famous for. Very interesting, important, uh, low-budget filmmaker. Kind of in his prime in the late 70s and 80s, made, um, after this, he made a thriller called Assault on Precinct 13, which is the classic situation of um, it's criminals and policemen locked in a police station, which is being... Um, besieged by a gang and it's a question of who are the people who are actually morally bad and it all identity sort of blurring a bit like nicholas rogue's performance then he kicked off the teen slasher wave with halloween he pushed the boundaries of special effects with the thing i mean when he's good he's really really great i mean he has made some naff stuff as well like prince of darkness but no that's fine started out in life as a long short film of about 45 minutes long which they made for 60 about sixty thousand dollars in 1973 which even for the day was a tiny amount of money we were talking last week about mad max being made for $400,000, so yes. you can get a sort of rough idea about the sort of production values we're dealing with. Carpenter co-wrote the script with fellow film student Dan O'Bannon, who would later write the screenplay for Alien, and who is credited on the Alien films as, you know, based upon characters by, regardless of how much they, they bear resemblance to his original work. And didn't Dan help make the sets as well? Yes, he helped, well, as, as will become clear with Dark Star, it's a film in which, because they had so little money, everyone basically had to muck in on everything, and almost no one got paid. Yes. Um, and Later, Dan O'Bannon would make a, a film in a similar vein called Return of the Living Dead, which is a parody of George Romero's zombie films. And no, it's it's quite uneven and a bit silly, but it has its moments. Um, so it was filmed as a short while uh, John Carpenter was in his final year as a film student. It played on the film festival circuit in 1973, where it was spotted by film producer John H. Harris, who paid them about the same amount to basically go back to convert the existing footage from 16mm to 35mm, which is the standard um, thing you use for projecting, and to shoot an extra 38 minutes to bring it up to a saleable feature length. So they went back and did that. Um, plot summary, it's set in the mid-22nd century, uh, when mankind has pretty much conquered space, and it follows the exploits of four planet smashers, who are Lieutenant Doolittle, Sergeant Pinback, who is played by Dan O'Bannon, Boiler, and Tolby, and their job is to fly light years into deep space, blowing up unstable planets that might be an obstacle to future colonization. And along the way, you have quarrels among the crew, you have encounters with a beach ball-shaped alien, whom Pinback keeps as this sort of ship's mascot, um, you have conversations with 
with their commander pal, who's been sort of cryogenically frozen in the hold and only speaks. As you do, yes. Yes, as so often happens on deep space trips. And uh, towards the end of the film, tension as one of their bombs becomes self-aware and threatens to detonate. At this point, we're going to play you the title music, which was written by Carpenter specifically for the film, to give you a flavour of what it's like. And here it is. Let's have some music in here, Boiler. Want to bring the memories back there, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that gives you a very good idea of what the film is like in terms of its tone. That was written by John Carpenter, and the guy singing it was a student friend of his called John Yeager, whom I think went on to have a sort of modestly successful music career, but I yeah, might I think be mistaken. He did, yeah. yeah. No, he certainly has the sort of natural country singer drawl going on. Yes. It reminds me, in a way, of uh, Willie Nelson, but that might just be me. So, where do we start with Dark Star? As an exercise in purely low... In just as an exercise in low-budget filmmaking, it is terrific. I mean, Carpenter is one of these directors who really knows how to work around the limitations associated with having no money, and he, he has a very good eye so that when you see a John Carpenter film, you think you're seeing something which has been made for ten times as much as yeah. it's actually been. Because there was so little money, like I said in the, in the build-up, everyone was multitasking, so Dan O'Bannon wrote it and played Sergeant Pinback, while Carpenter co-wrote it, produced it, directed, edited, and composed the soundtrack, including what you've just heard. And there are a number of interesting examples, um, if you kind of read about into the production notes, of how they got around the low budget. Um, the most common way, like a lot of these sorts of films, is where they use ordinary objects and just sort of paint them in a certain way. So uh, the jetpacks worn by the astronauts when they're negotiating with the bomb, the packs themselves are made out of styrofoam that used to hold an old TV set, and the sort of the dimpled front of their suits, that's actually a muffin baking tray. Yeah, but there are lots of the <laughs> 60s and 70s sci-fi low-budget movies were like that. Yeah, they? and I, that's not a bad thing. Yes. I mean, I, I think that there is something deeply affectionate about watching people with no money and just, you know, infinite ambition trying to get their fantasy sort of played out, and I don't have any problem with well, that Those of us who have loving memories of Doctor Who back in the uh, 60s and 70s, the same thing, wasn't yeah. it? It's a cheap effects. Yeah, there was a story about um, when the head of BBC Two was uh, speaking to Rob Grant and Doug Naylor when they were trying to get Red Dwarf made, you know, sort of billing it as a sci-fi comedy and said, don't do a sci-fi comedy because eventually you'll end up in a quarry of whales being chased around by people wearing cling film and it's just, well, Bakelite and so forth. But, yes. but uh, So there's that. There is also the famous elevator sequence in the film in which, basically, to cut a long story short, Dan O'Bannon has been chasing the ship's mascot around the ship and he, it's tricked him into basically hanging onto the bottom of a lift which is going up and down. And the way that they shot that, strangely enough, is they actually did the whole thing on its side. So the bottom of the lift is just a panel of metal which is going up and down a dolly track. Yeah. And Dan O'Bannon is sort of hold, just holding onto a pole and flailing his legs as if he's falling. But it does genuinely look like they're hanging onto the bottom of a lift and they yeah. did it for real. And that is an example of just how, how much they managed to achieve with so little resources. On the other hand, you do have a number of special effects which do sort of give away the limitations. I mean, the alien on board looks like a beach ball with hands because that's essentially what it is. <laughs> I mean, like it's like the... Um, do you have you? You're a fan of the prisoner, I presume. Yes, I am. Extent. Yes. Do you know yes. the story about how the rover monster came about, which is you know this large. Uh, white weather balloons that served as the guards of the uh, the strange I island. No, because it was originally going to be a vehicle or something. What, happened, what happened was that Pat, they were filming in 
the village in Wales whose name escapes me, and the vehicle they had was, they were testing its submersive abilities, and it went down into the water and didn't come up. <laughs> and then Patrick McGowan said, okay, we've got no money, what are we going to use? And he looked up and saw this weather balloon, and he basically said, can you go to the nearest weather station and get about 300 of them? And they just filled them with various bits of, you know, yeah. water and air and helium to make them bounce in a certain way and just put the sound effects on top. And it does, and there are sorts of through lines with the prisoner in terms of the alien's design. I mean, it's sort of playing it for laughs, although there's something slightly comical about Rover and the Prisoner anyway, just because, you know, who came up with that sort of thing. Yeah, somehow more believable than a um, vehicle going around without a driver would have been. Yeah, and it's much more scary because yes. obviously it has no face or yeah. no physical features, so, you yes. know, the fact of it squashing people is quite scary. Um, you also have the sort of special effects like the rocket flying through space at the beginning, which is a piece of acetate with the background moving behind. I mean, that's the way you do it. If you've seen Flash Gordon, it's exactly the same technique. And the sequence of them going through the asteroid field, it, I mean, it does look like all the sort of stuff has been drawn on the screen by hand. Although apparently, those special effects were a big influence on George Lucas when he came to make Star Wars. And <laughs> we'll come on to its relationship yeah. with Star Wars in just a minute. As I said before, as we just said, all these little kind of niggling complaints about the special effects, they're only niggling in the sense that we actually have an affection for the film. In the end, they don't especially matter. What does matter is the film in terms of its lineage, because it, it has, aside from its kind of appeal in terms of characters, it's very interesting as an historical document. On the one hand, it is a brilliant parody of the sort of weighty, big science fiction works of the late 60s and early 70s, particularly, of course, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 and Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris. I mean, I presume... Yeah, so sort of memories of 2001, wasn't it? Misbehaving computers with a mind of their own who think that they, uh, they, they dominate humans at the end. Yeah, in fact, I think one of the original timelines was a spaced-out odyssey. So, <laughs> which, again, just fits in beautifully. There are big hints of 2001 in the characters. I mean, like you say, the self-aware bomb is a, is a total nod to Hal. I mean, there's yeah. no other way around it. And and there are, is a sequence towards the end. There are sort of visual sequences which um, reference it exactly like the scene of the astronaut tumbling end over end as he floats off into space, which, of course, in Kubrick's film, is, it's sort of a, it's a match shot with the bone turning over and over at the beginning, which yeah. turns into the monolith in that famous jump cut. Yeah. Um, and there, there is a sequence towards the end where one of the astronauts called Tolby, after the ship has blown up, he gets carried off by the Phoenix asteroids, which are this group that orbits the Earth. And it's shot in a way which looks like the scene where Dave is passing through the monolith on his way to becoming a star child. So all that stuff is there. The latter, you know, the, the stuff about Solaris, which, which I presume you, you've seen, you know, the, the Tarkovsky film. No, I'm not have sure I remember that one. Have you seen the remake with George Clooney? Yes, yes. Yeah. Basically, you know, it's a guy who's been stuck in space and his... His dead wife haunts him, and you know, he's surrounded by this strange planet which is projecting memories. And you no, know, he's depending on which version, he either thinks it's real or it doesn't. Yeah. And that's sort of conveyed in the idea of you have four characters who are in space missing home. The difference is that instead of missing their wives, they're missing surfing. And there's one <laughs> character there, I think it's Doolittle, who says, I wish I had a surfboard with me, man, even if I got to just wax it, you know, just <laughs> remind me of when I used to go surfing all the time. So, all that sort of, on the one hand, you have the big sort of 
a portentous science fiction works basically being sent up and played for laughs and no that's absolutely fine on the other hand dark star is very interesting for the legacy it's left in subsequent sci-fi i mean we've already mentioned red dwarf which you know clearly borrows a lot of elements from dark star but and there are obvious links with alien because dan o'bannon who's in dark star wrote the screenplay in fact that whole section of the script was effectively retuned into his original screenplay which was which was actually called star beast before ridley scott sort of negotiated with him to change the name but surprisingly, there are also big things in Dark Star which seem to have been completely ripped off on, in when George Lucas came to make Star Wars. I mean, like we said, these special effects were an influence on him. And you know, he formed Industrial Light and Magic to basically say, OK, this is what special effects can do. Can we kind of vamp these up a bit yeah. and make them look a bit more... No, try and do, in with the money we have now, what they wanted to do in the 30s and 40s with the original Flash Gordon cartoons and so forth. And it is... And if you... <laughs> If you watch Star Wars now, it is quite scary about just how much of it is, well, not derivative, but just lifted straight from more interesting works. I mean, in the case of Flash Gordon, which we talked about at the start of this program's run, you have the idea of an evil emperor in space who is destroying the galaxy with an evil cyborg as his right-hand man. You know, you can clearly see where that's come from. Yeah. And in the case of Dark Star... There are design similarities because the, the ship Dark Star, it's essentially a very sort of flat triangle which looks like an Imperial cruiser, which of course in Star Wars are called Star Destroyers, so again it's not that hard to spot. And of course you have the central idea of a ship going through the galaxy whose job is to blow up planets. And again it doesn't take a sort of degree in science fiction to spot all those little things. It doesn't mean Star Wars isn't original in its own way, but you sort of can spot the lineage. If, however, you're not a total sci-fi nutball like me and you don't go and see films like this to sort of spot, well, that's from that and that's from that and that is a reference to this and that's obviously an in-joke about that, it's very easy to enjoy Dark Star just as a very goofy, albeit uneven, character piece. Because yeah. um, you were saying that you saw it on television uh, a couple of years after it came yeah, out. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it was sort of one of those classic ones that would have been shown uh, on late on a Friday night on yes. uh, ITV. Um <laughs> And, uh, and what, they, what was your initial reaction to it? Um, I think I was probably still young enough to believe half of it, and uh, I, I remember thinking it was it was uh, it was a very funny film. Uh, I thought the special effects worked quite well, but you know you brought it up in a in an environment where you thought Doctor Who was good, or you <laughs> even thought Crossroads was quite sophisticated. Well, I disputed and, the last uh, one. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, and Lost in Space, which for me the, the TV series was a classic, and yeah, you know, the special effects in that were definitely rudimentary yeah. um so that bit didn't bother you You took it for the the humor that came with it but there seemed to be a whole genre of films where you had people wearing tinfoil going out and doing improbable things in space and it's yeah and that was one of the great ones I yeah guess. and like i said i don't have any as we said at the start i don't have any problem with you know, the special effects i mean i'm someone who was consistently stuck up for flash gordon and uh, yeah. that's one that's one of those films in which it is just acetate moving across the screen and a marbling kit for the background but that's fine because it does work and it's part of the charm of the film I mean, the Can't, saddest thing for me with Lost in Space was turning it into a film. Um, the film uh, version is absolutely appalling. Yeah. Um, Gary Oldman's a great actor, but he was totally wasted. Yeah. Um, incidentally, is, am I right in thinking the robot in um, Lost in Space, is that the same design as the one in Forbidden Planet? I don't know whether they bought the right. Very to. similar, yes. yes. I don't, maybe you should take that up with them and you know, <laughs> put a lawsuit together. Yes. <laughs> so... Like I say, even if you're not interested in science fiction to a great extent, if you were sort of brought up with Star Wars and therefore view any sort of pre-77 sci-fi work as a bit ropey, 
there is enough in Dark Star to kind of enjoy as a comedy about four bozos in space. Carpenter described it famously as waiting for Godot in space. <laughs> and I think there is a lot of truth to that. Um, because that you have at the heart of it these four sort of quirky, goofy characters who are in space with nothing to do for inordinately long periods of time. And as a result, they've all gone a bit mad. And you see their madness play out in various ways. And there are a lot of odd scenes. There's one um, about halfway through of one of the astronauts going down to the hold and playing this very complicated musical instrument which is made entirely out of wooden spoons, bits of string and glass jars. And no, it's, it's sort of, it's, again, I think that song was composed especially by Carpenter, but it's just a three-minute sequence that comes out of nowhere, and then no one ever speaks of it again. <laughs> so like a lot of cult films. Then you have stuff like um, the extracts from Pinback's video diary, in which he, he pops a cassette in and you see these, these video diary entries playing out in which he's alternately fuming with rage that, you know, that all the other crew members hate him and they want to throw him off at the next planet. And then it keeps cutting back to him in a more sort of conspiratorial tone where he's claiming he's been replaced with liquid fuel specialist Bill Frug and the real pinback is dead and it's like, okay, what's going on? Who's yeah. It is one of those sequences that just sort of throws you off. And in the midst of all this sort of goofing around, which, you know, it's, it's, it is often a case of um, nothing has happened for five minutes, let's feed the alien, or uh, let's go down to the hold and talk to Commander Powell, or let's bring the bomb out and then put it yeah. back in, and that sort of thing. So it, it sort of jumbles around in the plot. In the midst of all this goofing around, there is the time to actually approach something in the more of the more intellectual sort, and this is where phenomenology comes in. Hey, you've got it right as I well. I said it for you, <laughs> yeah. Um, the centrepiece of the final act, I mean, if you don't want to know the ending of Dark Star, then maybe, you know, turn your radio halfway down for a couple of minutes. We won't talk about the ending itself, but the setup to the ending. The centrepiece of the last act is where one of the bombs which they use to blow up the planet has become self-aware because of an electrical fault and basically refuses to go back into the bomb bay but also refuses to turn itself off so it's counting down and threatening to blow up the whole ship and uh doolittle who's the sort of you know lead uh astronaut puts on a space suit goes out and basically teaches on the advice of commander powell about phenomenology phenomenology for people who haven't you know done philosophy degrees or anything like that it's the study of where knowledge comes from and no it's it's tied up with lots of semantics seems quite esoteric but in the context of this scene it's quite funny where basically doolittle tries to convince the bomb that you don't know where that order came from because it's processed as data and the bomb sort of goes I had to think about this. Goes back into the hole. You think, oh, it stops. No, like in a Bond film, just like with one second to go before blowing the whole thing up. But then it all goes horribly wrong when the bomb sort of misinterprets Doolittle's dogma by basically convincing the bomb that it's God and it says, let there be light, and the whole thing blows up. And that was that? <laughs> well, not quite. There's a bit afterwards, yes. but we don't want yeah. to give it away because the ending is quite sort of poignant. So to sum up, the film is very uneven. Like a lot of parodies, it is a case of jumping from sort of one gag or sending up one film to a next. And there are sort of, as you'd expect, deficiencies in both the effects and the sound quality, which sort of spoils it because there's lots of speeches of Dan O'Bannon ranting, but because the microphones are so sort of primitive, you can't really hear what he's saying. But as an historical piece and as an exercise in low-budget filmmaking, it is really good fun, and I do think it's actually on a par with Flash Gordon, purely as an exercise in uh, taking something which is goofy and silly and just playing it maximally for laughs. Incredible creativity and imagination for s such young people. Really. Absolutely, because I think Carpenter would have been only 
25, something like that, when he made it. And no, if it's certainly if you want to get into his career, and you should, that's the ideal place to start. It certainly makes you think, I mean, the Apollo space missions uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, I think inspired you know, kids to... Yeah, aspire to be astronauts and I can remember making rockets out of Lego and going on space missions with them and it's that whole creativity that was sparked by um, by that sort of mission to get to the moon. Yeah, I mean, because this was still the period in which yeah. they thought there'd be, you know, colonies built on the moon. Yeah. It was still at that age of optimism before mm. the whole Nixon stuff started happening. I'm thinking moon. about dodgy looking special effects and if you've ever seen an Apollo um, space capsule not up close i've seen it, it on footage of it does look as if it's made out of tin foil and <laughs> egg boxes <laughs> the real thing so uh, maybe the uh, maybe the special effects weren't so far off yeah the i mark. don't yeah nasa's yes. graduate scheme you know yeah. show people early episodes of you know captain scarlet or space yes. 1999 and say yeah now you can come along and build the real thing right we're going to take a little break and then we'll have a look at the new releases okay this is the fresh sound for the district live, live from Annick. this is lionheart radio lone star and every little thing she does. Right, new releases, and a lot of them this week, Daniel. Yes, there are seven to get through, so um, we we'll best crack, crack on. on. Yeah, we should just say before we crack on, um, next week's cult film is Pink Floyd The Wall. Oh, so, uh, should be a classic. Yeah, and uh, it'll be slightly odd next week, because I'll be doing this down the phone line, because I'll be in Cheshire, but we'll get through it somehow. Yes. Yeah. Okay, we start with your film of the week, which yes, is um, Animal Kingdom. Because there's a lot... we. Because there's a lot to do, I thought I'd get the, the film of the week out of the way instead of just yeah. doing 30 seconds with it at the end. It's the debut film from David Mitchod, who uh, is an Australian director. It's uh, already won a number of prizes. The most famous face in it is Guy Pearce, who, of course, is in The King's Speech as Ever the Eighth. Have you seen um, the remake of The Time Machine with him in? Uh, no, I didn't. No, no. you're not missing out on much. I mean, he's good, but no, the rest yeah. is a bit all over the place. So... Uh, Animal Kingdom is an Australian crime film based loosely on the real-life Pettingill family and the Walsh Street shootings in Melbourne in 1988. It begins with uh, our lead character um, having to move back in with his domineering grandmother after his uh, own mother overdoses on heroin. He has to contend with um, the fact that uh, his grandmother is this sort of incredibly matriarchal domineering head of a crime family and she has three strapping young sons who want to compete for her affections and so forth. Um, the film won uh, Best Film and Best Director at the Australian Institute Film Awards. It also won the World Jury Prize at Sundance, and you, you know the Sundance Festival. Mm -hmm. you know, festival for low-budget films set up yep. by Robert Redford in the early 80s, you know, Sundance Kid, Sundance, anyway. Um, there's also been an Oscar nod for this film in the category of Best Supporting Actor for Jackie Weaver, although I think it's very likely she'll lose out to either Hayley Stein Steinfeld or uh, Helena Bonham Carter. I think it's a very interesting examination of the Melbourne underworld. I mean, there is something about low-budget Australian cinema which just does gritty very well. I mean, we were talking about Mad Max next week, yeah. last week, and no, yeah. although it's not exactly in the same territory, there is sort of thing of we can make it for no money at all and yeah. it will look absolutely real. I don't think the story is anything remarkable, but it, it has been a pretty good year for films that have come out of Sundance. I mean, Winter's Bone, which is pretty good. The Kids Are All Right with Julianne Moore and Annette Bening, which is... A very interesting work and i do think anything with guy pierce is worth seeing so go and check that out i think it's at the time side from uh from yesterday so you can go and check it out this weekend right okay next one the right yes um new supernatural horror thriller starring anthony hopkins so not a bad start yeah uh directed by michael ha michael hafstrom who previously helmed the adaptation of uh stephen king's 1408 with john cusack have you seen that 
no. Um, based, no, it's, have you seen A Secret Window? Because it's essentially yes. the same story. Yeah. Um, like a lot of Stephen King's recent stuff, he does seem to be repeating himself. Uh, based upon a book by Matt Palio, the story is you have Father Lucas, who's played by Hopkins. He takes a young sort of trainee cleric called Michael under his wing, because Michael is having a crisis of faith. While uh, training at the ceremony, uh, at the seminary, Lucas performs a number of exorcisms. Um, it's a sort of demonstrate to Michael that, yeah. you know, the devil is real and we can get rid of him. And he sort of begins to act strangely in the whole thing of, is he possessed? Isn't he? Is, where's the devil involved? What's going on? Now, here's the thing. In supernatural horror, there is a very, very thin line between the profound and the preposterous, and it is very difficult to approach ideas of possession and the intervention or non-intervention of God without just descending into hysterical special effects. I mean, you have things like John Borman's Exorcist to the Heretic or John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, which, which do just attempt to go the whole hog and ramp things up, and in the end they are well, at best a bit silly, and at worst just a complete waste of time. I mean, if you've seen the original Exorcist and then you watch the sequel, it's like spitting on its grave, frankly. I mean, Borman's an interesting filmmaker, but he did just... I don't know what he was drinking that day. Um, even the ones that work in this area, like the original version of The Omen, there are moments in that when it sort of tips over, because do you remember the scene in The Omen where it's um, Gregory Peck and David Warner outside the coffee shop talking about... Um, you know, this speech of, you know, creating yeah. armies on either shore and trying to imply that it's tied up with the formation of the common market, and you just go, no. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter with the rest of the film, because the rest of the film's really scary, but that bit, just yeah. don't believe it. Sorry, yeah. guys. So, with this, for all the good intentions of the right to basically make a film about is God real? Where, what is the role of the devil? Basically covering the exact same ground of The Exorcist. It does eventually end up collapsing into a bizarre mix of boredom and hysteria, which in the end make it very hard to like. I mean, it isn't as bad as The Da Vinci Code, because it doesn't take itself so seriously that it's always dull. <laughs> but it's just a bit of a wasted opportunity. I mean, yeah. I'll see Anthony Hopkins in almost everything, but he, he needs to... He's a, a good actor. He is very good. I mean, there have actually been quotes on the posters saying, you know, best performance since Silence of the Lambs. Not sure about <laughs> that. Incidentally, if you're wanting um, one of his lesser-known roles, go and rent The World's Fastest Indian, in which he plays a New Zealander motorcyclist. Right, I shall make a note of that one. Yeah. Yes. Okay, next film is I Am Number Four. <sighs> yeah. This is going to be the big sort of money spinner of the week, certainly with the, the teenage crowd. It's directed by DJ Caruso from uh, Platinum Dunes, which is the production company of Michael Bay, so we already know what territory we're in. Um, starring Alex Pettifer, who um, started out as a sort of teenage teenage idol. He was in the adaptation of uh, Stormbreaker, the Anthony Horowitz novel. Yeah. Did you see that? No. Right. Um, he was most recently in uh, this sort of high school horror comedy called Tormented, when he was playing this school bully who went around swearing a lot and who did a quite good job. The story is he's one of nine aliens that were sent to Earth from their home planet of Lorien after it was invaded. I can already see you smirking. No, highly believable one. Yes, yes. No, as we'll come on to it. Um, now he's being hunted down by his enemies called the Mogadorians. You're smirking again. <laughs> Um, and the, so they're hunting him down. The gimmick is that these people can only be killed in order. The first three are dead, and he is number four, hence the title. So first off, it's nothing you haven't seen before. I mean, obviously the idea of children being sent to Earth as their home planet is destroyed. Obviously that hints back to the beginning of Superman. Yes, Although indeed. without this would film would undoubtedly be a lot better if they'd managed to resurrect Marlon Brando like they did in Superman Returns, where they just got his face yeah. and put some new footage around it. Obviously calling the planet Lorien, hence back to Lothlorien in Lord of the Rings, and there is a whole ethereal thing going on. There is also the device which they have of 
the aliens having sort of blue spheres of energy which allow them to sort of come together and communicate, that's a straight lift from John Carpenter's Starman, which is, you know, which was billed as being E.T. for clever people, although I actually think it's a, it's a better film than E.T. because it's you know, much more sort of affectionate. It's, you know, the idea of Jeff Bridges comes down to Earth as an alien, takes on the form of Karen Allen's dead husband, and basically she ends up falling in love with him. And it's a very interesting story of, you know, well, how would we deal with aliens if we're the people who invited them there because he came after reading the stuff on Voyager 2. But that's a very interesting film. The other thing about um, Iron Number no. 4 is that DJ Caruso is a hack. I mean, his previous two films, he made Disturbia, which was essentially a rip-off of Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window, but with explosions. And before this, he made Eagle Eye, which took a sort of similar premise of Westworld in the sense of, you know, elaborate technology breaking down and turning on humans. And again, just sort of dumbed it down and blew everything up. And the involvement of Michael Bay means that you're going to get a lot of stuff which doesn't make any sense and a lot of pseudo-pornographic visuals, and you just don't need to give him any more money. I mean, Transformers 3 is already in post-production, and that's going to be hideous, so why would you bother? So not much original from what you're saying. No, I mean, DJ Caruso, he's very visually stylish in the sense that he knows how to do special effects, but he just doesn't know how to tell a story of his own. So my advice is go and get um, either Starman or Superman, the original version with Christopher Reeve, if you uh, want to sort of sci-fi film with people running away from aliens or if you must go and see paul right okay no strings attached yeah um neuromantic comedy starring natalie portman who's sort of up and down but she's yeah. very good in black swan and ashton kutcher who's always down and is of course most famous these days for being demi moore's is it husband or partner are they married i'm not partner, sure i think yeah isn't it? partner um it's directed by ivan reitman who um is most famous still for doing the ghostbusters series which i've always sort of rather overrated i don't know where you stand on them uh i like the first one yes mm. but you, you don't think that the special effects ending at the end is a bit dreary um, again, it was, it was of an era, wasn't it? So, yeah, but just the fact that they... Anyway, we'll, yeah. we'll get distracted. So the story is, they're two best friends, they've been best friends for a number of years, and they put their jeopardy in night one night by sleeping with each other. And there's a certain amount of regret and uncertainty on both sides, so they decide to go for a relationship which is no strings attached, which basically, we'll sleep together, but we promise we won't fall in love. Yeah. Um, Here's the thing. When an actor or an actress gets nominated for an Oscar or any other kind of award, it's often the case that film companies will see that as an opportunity to put out a lesser-known work into the cinemas that they might have made around the same time. The reasoning being that, on the one hand, people will come and see it on the basis of, well, she was good in that, therefore I'll go and see this. But if the film is a stinker, then it will sort of get swept under the sort of tidal wave of Oscar publicity and therefore it's, it won't yeah. do a huge amount of damage. Just like the whole practice of releasing a film on Boxing Day so everyone will be so full of turkey that they won't <laughs> care if it's terrible. Um, the idea behind this is not especially original again. I mean, the poster, if you've seen it, which is Natalie Portman and Ashton Kutcher in various stages of undress, that's very similar to the poster of Ed Zwick's recent film Love and Other Drugs with Jake Dylan and Norman Hathaway, which is yeah. very good. But the whole, the film as a whole owes a massive debt to, it's like when Harry met Sally, but starting at the diner scene and then working <laughs> from there. You know, the whole, I'll have what she's having. And you can actually go to that diner in, I think it's in New York, and there is a, a sort of arrow hanging down that this is where Meg Ryan had her moment. <laughs> Oh, it was a great film, that, <laughs> that one. That is really yes. good, no, that is a really good scene. But it's essentially that same idea of, the, the central idea of Harry Met Sally is can people, can men and women be friends without falling in love? And in this case, it's can men and women have sex without falling in love? So it's slightly more sort of adolescent and, you know, yes. questionable. 
The other thing is that, I mean, it does fall into a lot of rom-com traps. There is a supporting role by Kevin Kline as Ashton Kutcher's mad dad. So, you know, strange kind of family. I mean, I like Kevin Kline. You know, you must have seen A Fish Called Wanda. Yes, In yes, which he indeed. plays, I think Absolutely. he actually won an Oscar for that role. But, uh, you know, and he is very good in almost anything he does. Obviously, he's in Wild Wild West, but less said about that, the better. Ivan Reitman's comedies, not just Ghostbusters, but stuff like My Super Ex-Girlfriend a few years ago, they don't date at all well. I mean, you, they're okay when they come out, but a few years down the line, you sort of think, well, no, not really. And for all the sort of gusto that the performers give it, and for all the sort of interest of seeing Natalie Portman on screen in something which isn't completely hysterical and insane, it's just not the complete package. And When Harry Met Sally is a much better film. Great. Right. Next one on the list. We're getting through these at a pretty good rate, actually. Yeah, we so. are. So, uh, <laughs> Howl. Okay, uh, interesting choice. Um, biopic of the Beat Generation poet Allen Ginsberg. Are you familiar with his work? Um, I'm not no. very no. much. So, <laughs> no. No. When I say you're familiar with yeah. it, I don't necessarily you know, <laughs> have an encyclopedic knowledge of everything I'm talking about. Um, so it's a biopic of Allen Ginsberg, played by James Franco, who has yeah. just been Oscar nominated for his lead performance in 127 Hours. Um, it's, it's, so the film intertwines the writing and performance of his most famous poem called Howl, which is supposed to be a little, I saw the finest brains of my generation basically turn to mush and something like that. Lots of stuff that we can't say on air because there is profanity and, you know, large sort of, well, just stuff that would be considered obscene. It's intercutting the writing of the poem with his subsequent obscenity trial in 1957, where basically people say you can't write poems about homosexuality in this way, quite apart from the fact that homosexuality was at that point still illegal in all 50 states. Um, the cast includes a supporting performance by David Strathern, who is um, most known in two performances in The Bourne Ultimatum, when he plays Noah Vosen, who's the sort of slippery head of the yeah. CIA, you know, um, the one who's sort of arguing with Pam Landy and gets done over at the end by Matt Damon in a way which is very, really good fun. He's also most famous for his performance in Good Night and Good Luck, you know, the, uh, the film which was directed by George Clooney about the McCarthy era in which you had stock footage of Joseph McCarthy intercut with real life um, working in a newsroom. And you know, it sort of worked okay, but it was a bit of a lecture. Again, like No Strings Attached, it is a case of let's put a lesson work out to sort of capitalise on the fact that our star has got, you know, has done well for himself. And for all the interesting stuff that came out of the Beat Generation, I mean, obviously, this is the same generation that gave birth to Jack Kerouac, who's, I think there's an adaptation of On the Road in the Works, which is coming out next year. That'd so, be interesting. Yeah, I think Kirsten Stewart's going to be in it, playing the girl, so um, by all means, look out for that. For all the stuff that sort of came out of that generation, which was groundbreaking and interesting, both in terms of its political standpoint and in terms of its contribution to poetry. The film is a little bit too in love with its subject matter. I mean, if you've seen the trailer for it, it's like the reading of the poem intercut and there's like a cut every three seconds or something yeah. from, you know, a dream sequence and let's have the trial, let's have the, let's have the poem, let's have people smoking and looking incredibly cool, let's have Alan Ginsberg played by James Franco in a very odd beard. And it does look like a film where... The, but basically, like I said, the filmmakers are so in love with their subject, they just go, yes, let's do everything. And as a result of this, they never get to grips with the actual meat of the story, and all the characters therefore sort of come across as a bit obnoxious. Yeah. Include, I mean, Ginsburg is a, he's a, he's a controversial figure in himself, but that doesn't mean you have to play him as someone who's completely unlikable. I mean, I think that this, all the performances of, you know, James Franco's performance is interesting, and I like David Strathern, but if you want to go and see a film about kind of 
free speech and obscenity and so forth, go and see The People versus Larry Flint, which is still Woody Harrelson's finest work. Or, if you're you know, sort of interested in the idea of literature being obscene, there was a TV um, drama called The Chatterley Affair a few years ago, which had a supporting role by David Tennant about, and that was about the case of whether or not Lady Chatterley's lover was yeah, obscene. No, I remember and, that. Uh, yeah, yeah, there was a BBC Four thing, and that was yeah. very interesting. And so... How there are interesting things in it, but ultimately it's not well executed. So before we move on, uh, the Bourne trilogy, you were a fan? Love it. Yeah, they were great films, weren't they? I th which do you think is the best, though? I uh, the first one, definitely. Well, that's I interesting. I'd say they get progressively better. But, uh, yeah. I, I, like, uh, I like the way they staged the, the first one, and uh, after that, I mean, they were exciting and they were fun, but they were a little bit formulaic for me. Um, I would whereas... I would disagree, but we we don't have enough time. <laughs> the first one is very good, but no, it's 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 a slightly old-fashioned thriller, but it is good fun. Yeah. Um, drive. So, drive angry. Um, in 3D, new new action movie with Nicolas Cage, directed by Patrick uh, Lugier, I think you pronounce his name is, who um, most recently helmed the 3D remake of My Bloody Valentine. He's now working apparently on 3D remakes of both Halloween 3 and Hellraiser. The latter of which fills me with dread, because if you're a horror fan, Clive Barker's Hellraiser is one of the most important works of the late 1980s. So the story is, Nicolas Cage plays a man called Milton, um, who uh, breaks out of hell to stop a cult that murdered his daughter from sacrificing his granddaughter. He's joined on the run by Amber Heard. He's being chased. Now, I, when I was putting this together, I thought, no, is Richard, what's Richard going to think of this? Because the <laughs> villain in this film is called The Accountant. Oh, lovely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're all villains. <laughs> so I, I wonder if you'll go and see it just yes. on the basis of that. And so yeah. he's being chased by a guy called The Accountant who is basically trying to get Milton to come back to hell. So you have, basically, it does what it says on the tin. It's 3D, there's lots of driving, lots of CGI flames, lots of shouting, and not much going on between its ears. I mean, it is sort of trying to invoke Paradise Lost in the fact that one of its characters is called Milton, but that's about as intellectual as it gets. You could see that working in 3D. I mean, some of the 3D ones are around, I wonder why bother, but you can, I mean, chasing, chase scenes you can see uh, coming across well. If but do you think the chase scene from The French Connection would have been better in 3D? Probably not, no. Well, okay. Um, th there's just a couple of other things. I mean, Amber Heard is a, an interesting actress. She's going to be later this year in The Rum Diary, which is the new film from the guy who directed with Nell and I, and that's an adaptation of a Hunter Thompson novel. But I'm just a bit worried that she's sort of becoming perfunctory girl in horror film because she was in John Carpenter's The Ward recently which was alright but she's also been in stuff like the remake of The Stepfather which is basically nothing's happened for a minute let's have Amber Heard wander on screen in a bikini and see what happens <laughs> and yeah I just think she needs to do something a bit more adventurous and a little bit less generic but you know if you're a fan of Nicolas Cage it's probably fine in a sort of empty headed disposable way Right, finally this week, West is West. Which is the long-awaited sequel to East is East, which um, won a lot of BAFTAs back in 1999. Famous film about sort of cross-cultural uh, divides. You have a family of Pakistani uh, origin who are growing and whose youngest members are growing up in Britain. And it's the whole idea of how can we integrate into British society while hanging on to what makes us yeah. unique as Pakistanis and as Muslims. Um, this, in this sequel, you have the youngest son uh, being taken on a trip to Pakistan to kind of remind him of his cultural and religious heritage. It's directed by Anthony, Anthony Diemene, who is most famous for helming the sixth series of Red Dwarf. And he is a sort of televisual director. Now, he does sort of low-budget stuff quite well, but he is ultimately rather televisual. I think it's one to see if you're a fan of East is East, but otherwise there's not... A, there's certainly, if, you're, if you want to get into that series, this isn't the place to start. Right. So we uh, say to sum up the week, Animal Kingdom are definite. Animal Kingdom is the film of the week. If you want something a bit more mainstream than 
I suppose the only other recommendation is the right, although prepare to be, you know, laughing rather than sort of, you know, <laughs> appreciating it on a serious level. Otherwise, if you haven't seen uh, The King's Speech, True Grit or Black Swan yet, what have you been doing with yourself? Go and catch them. Um, or Tangled if you've got young children. And like I say, next week's cult film is Pink Floyd the War. Which should be good indeed. It I'll will be. have to and we'll blow the dust off me. Pink yeah. Floyd albums yes, before that. Yes, we'll have to play something from the double album if we get the chance. Great. Well, thanks very much for coming in. You're back uh, this Thursday, is that right? I am, from one till three. Right, so your normal weekly fun? Yep. Great. Absolutely. I'll be back uh, next week. Um, don't forget, the big wedding is happening later today, uh, which is why Jerry G is not here this afternoon, because he's busy doing things, getting ready for the... Uh, oh, he's been invited, has he? Uh, I don't know if he's invited or it's just because he, he works at the castle. And oh, right. So I guess he's got to go do some work this afternoon. It's probably a, a big day for everybody working at the castle. You're cozying up to the yes. Jews. And will Prince William be there? I don't know. Um, go and have a look for yourself. That's going to be half past five this afternoon. Um, Laura Wilkinson will be back at five o'clock this afternoon, so enjoy the music that we've got for you during the afternoon. But it's coming up to 11 o'clock. Goodbye from Daniel and myself. The latest news now from Adam. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.